If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. We are in the third part of a series called Going Places. We've been making a track with the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, as they left Egypt and made their way to Mount Sinai. We were in Exodus 15 two weeks ago, Exodus 16 last week, and Exodus 17 this week, and we've been watching them have some good days and bad days. We saw how they left Egypt, a beautifully vegetative space, and they went out into a desert. I mean, a harsh, harsh place, a desert full of rocks and sand and heat and misery. And within just a few days of being out in this terrible terrain, we also see them struggling with the issue of thirst. Uh, two weeks ago, they were at the well of Mara, just three days into their journey, and they're struggling with thirst and they're struggling with the sense that maybe God has already abandoned them. And in this miraculous moment, God takes a bitter well and he turns it sweet so that they can all drink. A miracle truly from God. Well, last week we followed them a few more days into the journey. Now some month and a half as they're going and it's not thirst that they're dealing with, but hunger. And man, they're wondering if yet again God has left them, if God has abandoned them because they don't have any food and they're in this position where they cry out to God and they grumble and they complain, God's gonna leave us out here to die. And God provides another miracle. This is the miracle of, do you all remember the name of the substance? Manna, or what is that? From God's very hand. Every morning, manna on the ground and quail in the evening to eat, meat and manna. Well, we're getting closer and closer to Mount Sinai and we'll actually be there next week. And I need to do a little, little plug. Next week's service is gonna be just a little different as we approach the mountain of God. So you might, I'm not gonna tell you what's going on because that would kind of ruin the cool surprise factor, but just be ready. It's gonna be a little different than you might anticipate. So as they approach the mountain of God, they are still just a little ways out. And I have a map here. I've been sharing the map with you kind of as they get closer and closer to the mountain, closer and closer to the final spot where God's gonna give those 10 commandments. They're cruising down and now they're out a little ways in what we know as the Valley of Rephidim. And sure enough, they're gonna be in another problem spot. This time, they're going to face a situation that they had already faced and God had already provided, but they're going to be without water again. And the little place that they stop at is going to become known from then on as a place of Masa and Meribah, a place that nobody wants to stay a place where the name will forever describe their weakness and their lack of confidence in God. I'm beginning to read from chapter 17 of Exodus. I'm gonna read the first seven verses. And just a note this morning, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation of the scripture. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse one, it says this. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of Sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim. 
But there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. That's what you say to people demanding for water. Quiet! Quiet, Moses. I should not have added that while reading God's word. That disrupted the scripture reading, forgive me. Moses replied, why are you complaining against me and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. And Moses named the place Masa, the place of testing, and Meribah, the place of quarreling, because the people of Israel quarreled with Moses and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? And what can I say? God has done yet again another miracle. God has done another miraculous thing. He's provided water from a rock. I don't know what kind of rocks you have in your backyard or what kind of rocks you have around your place, but most often you don't strike rocks and get water. Now, the miracle at Mara was impressive. I mean, goodness, there was a bitter well that God turned sweet. But the difference in this miracle is there is no current present existence of water. There is nothing with which to turn from bitter to sweet, he's truly creating something out of nothing. And God makes a way. He is a way maker. When there seems to be no source of water, no source of life, God provides yet again. And you would think, you would think that this place would be forever known because of the miracle. You would think that this place would be forever named for God's miraculous provision. But instead, Moses names this place Masa and Merhaba to remind forever all that would come by it of the people's reactions to God and the people's thoughts about God's care. I mean, this morning I would be doing well to focus on Moses and man, he's crying out to the Lord. He's telling him to be quiet. He's telling God they're gonna kill me. We could focus on Moses. We could focus on the miracle of the rock, but I actually wanna focus on the naming of the place. What it will be forever known as. I wanna focus on the way the people, God's people, reacted to yet again a spot in their life where they felt as if God had abandoned them. Because I think, I think, there could be places in all of our lives where we feel like God has left us, where God has abandoned us, that God no longer is with us. And you and I may have walked through that, that valley, and it's a place we don't want to stay. 
It's not a good place to be. Massa and Meribah are not two places you want to stay for long. Have you ever gone to a place that you knew pretty quickly you didn't need to stay? Ever gone to a hotel and immediately you knew we don't need to stay here? A few years ago, my family and I had planned a little weekend, kind of a long weekend trip in Cincinnati. And we were gonna take our boys, they were a little younger then. We were gonna take them to the zoo, Cincinnati Zoo. We were gonna go to the Newport Aquarium. And as a gift to the parents, we were gonna go to Ikea. (laughs) That was gonna be our treat, Ikea. Because back in those days, Ikea, you could drop your kids off in the play area and you could just enjoy Ikea parents alone. It was like date night extreme. So we had prepared to do that. And, you know, I'm a cheapskate, confessed, frugal cheapskate. I went to buy a room online, Priceline, one of those bidding auction websites. And man, a room popped up for $45 a night. That's a steal, folks. That's kind of my budget right there. I bought the room, not really doing much, but I looked at the pictures of the place and it was the Coco Key Resort. Oh, the Coco Key. It's not just a hotel. It's not just a conference center. It's an indoor water park. Oh, for $45 a night, you know what's about to happen, don't you? An indoor water park, I told our boys, you know, they were just little guys. Hey guys, get your swimming trunks, get your goggles. We're not only gonna go to the zoo. We're not only gonna go to you know, the, the fun, the aquarium. We're also gonna get to spend time at a water park. Oh, we're gonna have so much fun. The pictures on the website look nice. They had smiling children on the website, you know, having a good time on inner tubes and floats. They all looked as if they were enjoying themselves. Even the company that was owning this resort was the Radisson. So I thought, you know, the Radisson, the Marriott, you know, I'm thinking all things. But really, the $45 a night should have told me something. We pull in and I knew something was wrong when I saw the sign to the hotel. It was a vinyl banner held by zip ties. Folks, the Coco Key was having some hard times. We go in and, and again, we go in, our little boys are pulling their little suitcases. They got their swim goggles on their head. I mean, they are geared up, ready for indoor water park. And we walk in and it's like we've entered into an abandoned warehouse. We're looking for people. There's no one around. We knew people were there because the trash cans were overflowing with pizza boxes and beer cans. I thought, uh uh-oh. We finally find a woman. We couldn't find anybody to check us in. We didn't really know where to go. And she had a walkie-talkie on her hip. I thought, okay, she must be an employee, must be someone in maintenance or housekeeping. She must be taking care of the place. No, she's the only employee in the whole hotel. And she goes, oh, come with me. So we walk with her into what once was a lobby of this hotel, but now had got completely covered with plastic tarps covering up all the bad areas they didn't want the guests to see. And I'm just thinking, are, are you like covering up like, like someone's body line on the ground or something? Is, is something gone down here that we need to know about? She checks us in at a laptop at a table that looked like a folding table we use here in church for a banquet. I thought, oh my gosh. But the little boys, you know, indoor water park, indoor, dad, you brought us to the indoor water park and we see it. We go to the room and, and I got this look over the whole time, my wife Jennifer and I, she's cutting eyes at me like, this is your fault. You did this. 
you know what's about to happen. She's cutting these eyes. And so we go into the room and she goes, does the, the finger wave. So that means stop. The boys and I are holding our little suitcases at the door. She walks into the room, pulls back the bed covers as many, many mamas know to do, threw them back and went, we're out, we gone. We are not sleeping in these beds. And so the little boys and I, we have seen that look before. We know mamas, we're out look. And so we just grab our little suitcases and off we go back to the lobby. We get back to the lobby and the lady's like, what's wrong with your room? And I almost said, what's wrong with your mind? Did you call this a hotel? What's wrong with you? She gave us our, our little room reservation back. And I kid you not, I kid you not. We left the parking lot and went to the very next hotel we saw, which happened to be fairly close, like 100 yards away. It was the little Sheraton. Here, here's the picture of the Sheraton that we went to. And when we walked in, especially with the little boys in suitcases and their little head goggles, the people started laughing at the check-in counter. And they went, Coco Key? And we went, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, we did. Because all of their guests were flooding in from the Coco Key next door. They said they keep their hotel booked with people who are leaving the Coco Key and looking for another place to stay. Well, we didn't get to stay in the indoor water park. We didn't get to uh, get meningitis and bacteria from whatever was going to be in that water. But we knew it was not a place to stay. We knew it was not a place that was going to be good for us. We knew whatever the price, whatever the budget, it was going to have some problems. And in these places, there's something in our soul, something in our spirit Something in our brains and in our hearts that tell us you're not in a good place. You're not in a place to stay. And I think in this particular passage, there's two places. It's the same place by name, but it's two descriptions of places that people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, men and women who want to follow after God's will, you and I, we don't want to stay in these places. There's just two, and that's the two points of the message. The first is a place called Masa, a place of testing. You and I don't want to stay in a place for long where we are testing God's presence in our life, where we're testing whether or not God is real in our life. And it says in verse 7 that Moses named the place Masa, the place of testing. That's the name. It's because the people of Israel tested the Lord. Tested the Lord by asking, is the Lord with us here or not? They're asking Moses and ultimately asking God, are you still here with us or have you abandoned us? They're testing the Lord. Masa literally translated means to prove or to test or to try. It's a it's a proving that God is real, a proving that God is there. It sounds something like this. God, sh give me a sign to prove that you're still with me. God, show yourself in my life by proving to me that you still love me, that you're still with me, that I'm still your child. And the consistent Instruction from Scripture and specifically from God 
is that any time we feel led to test God or to question God or to try God, to have God prove himself to us is simply this. Don't do it. Don't do it. Deuteronomy 6.16, which is in reflection of this passage in Exodus, the scripture says, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa. You're not supposed to test God. It's not a good idea to test God. It's not a good idea to put God on some evaluation that says, if you don't show up, I'm out. If you don't prove yourself, I'm gone. It's not a good place to be. Even Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, when he was tested by Satan, tempted by Satan in the wilderness after days of fasting and days of being alone, and Jesus was put under the scrutiny of Satan himself. The scripture says in Matthew 4 verse 5 that then the devil took Jesus up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, Satan himself is quoting scripture telling Jesus, test God, test him. May God prove he will save you. May God prove he will rescue you. You can jump off this high point and you can test God that he will send his angels to rescue you and to hold you safe. And Jesus, our Lord and Savior, says to the enemy, it is, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not a good place to stay. And it's not a good place to stay for really two reasons. First, it questions God's presence. The people had evidence of God's presence. They had evidence of God's power. They had evidence and evidence and evidence that God was with them. He was with them in Egypt. He was with them at Mara, the bitter well. He was with them with the manna and the quail. He is with them now when there is no water to drink. Over and over and over, they have evidence of God's presence in their life. And they're questioning whether God is still with them. And friends, let me just say this to you. God, almighty God, Creator of the universe, his presence has never left you. You may feel it. You may feel abandoned. You may feel alone. You may feel as if God has drawn his hand from you. But you are not in any way abandoned. God's presence has never left you. From the moment of your salvation, truly, even before then, it says in Scripture, where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from you? For if I go to the depths, you are there. If I go on the heavens, you are there. You can't get away from God's presence. And whenever you drew Christ into your life as a salvation and as a confession, the Scripture says you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence is dwelling with you forever. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. The scripture says in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. We can feel that way at times because of our circumstances, because of what we're going through. But God has never abandoned you. He's never left you. His presence has never departed. <clears throat> Staying in a place of Masa questions God's presence. 
It also questions God's promises. Friends, let me tell you. Can I give you a word today? Can I give you some encouragement? God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And the Bible, the word of God, is full of promises from God our Father to each and every one of us. Some for this life, some for the life that's to come. And God keeps his word. He kept his word to the Hebrew people in freeing them from Egypt. He kept his word to the Hebrew people in parting the Red Sea. He kept his word from the, to the Hebrew people in making water that was bitter sweet. He kept his word by providing manna and quail. He kept his word that he would draw them to the Mount of Sinai and they are right on the edge. They are right within view and God keeps his word. Friends, everything that God has promised in his covenants and in his promises to his people, he will fulfill. He will not go back on his word. God is truthful. He is a full of authority and God is consistent absolutely unequivocally going to keep what he has promised his people to keep you don't have to worry about that we struggle at times keeping our word but God keeps his word questioning God is not a good place to be it's not a good place to stay but let me shift to the other name that Moses gives this place he calls it Masa and Merhabah. Masa, the place of testing, but Merhabah, a place of quarreling. A place of quarreling. Moses, verse 7, named the place Merhabah. Masa, the place of testing. Merhabah, the place of quarreling. Because the people of Israel quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with Moses. Merhabah simply means to argue or quarrel or to be full of strife to be contentious to kind of have something going on in your soul that never is at peace it's always on defense always in attack mode now I'm going to be your friend and your pastor for a minute can I be your friend and pastor for a minute the scripture guides us in our walk with Christ, that as much as it is possible, as much as it is plausible, we need to live at peace with people. There are going to be moments where things get a little heated, things get a little, uh, little friction filled. But as much as it is possible with us, as much as it is possible with you and I, we are to live at peace. Scripture actually teaches, as much as is possible with you, live peaceably with one another. But you and I know, you and I know, there are some people who love to quarrel. There's some people who have a quarrelsome spirit. They love to fight. They love to argue, they love to be contentious, they love to be in strife. It's some sort of magnet that when there's drama, when there's a fight, when there's an argument, they're around. Like those little bugs to a light bulb, they zoom in. They get in some complaints with their family, they get in some arguments with their business or their employer they get in arguments and quarrels with kids or with people at their kids school man I saw it this week I spent three days this week at the soccer field and I saw it every single day quarrelsome people and they just weren't quarreling with the refs they were quarreling with anybody they could find who would listen just 
full of a spirit of quarreling. Scripture describes this kind of person in Proverbs 26, verse 21. It says, coal, listen, coal keeps the embers glowing, wood keeps the fire burning, and quarrelsome people keep arguments alive. I don't want you to answer this with an amen, and I certainly don't want you to point a finger, but do you know some people who keep the arguments alive? Just keep it stirred up. I would invite you, if, if that is a place that you find yourself from time to time, you find yourself as a person who runs to the quarrel, who starts the quarrel, who finds some sort of joy being in a contentious, strife-filled argument with people, you first ask the Lord, to start moving in your heart. Because that is not something you want to be in long. Because the scripture is actually very serious about this kind of spirit. I don't want you to take it too lightly. I don't want you to just take it, oh, I like to get in a little argument with some people. Oh, sometimes I like to stir the drama. Oh, sometimes I like to make little comments online. Oh, sometimes I like to gossip a little bit in the parking lot. But if you're a quarrelsome person, listen to several of the passages in the New Testament that describes what this is. Romans chapter 1, verse 29, and these are all from the Apostle Paul. He writes, their lives, in describing these kinds of folks, he says their lives become full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. It's included in that list. In Romans 13, 13, Paul writes, don't participate in the darkness. What's an example of darkness? Of wild parties, of drunkenness, or in sexual promiscuity, and in moral living, or in quarreling and jealousy. He's saying don't even get involved in that kind of darkness. In Galatians chapter 5, where Paul articulates what the fruits of the Spirit are, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, he also frames to the fruits of the flesh, not fruits of the spirit, but fruits of the flesh are desires, natural fleshly desires. He says this in Galatians 5.19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, your flesh, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties and other sins like these. We might dismiss quarreling as being, oh, that's just something I do. That's just some way that I am. That's how my family solved conflict at home. That's just the kind of house I grew up in. But for the follower of Christ, the person of God, you need to deal with the heart of the matter. This is not a silly subject. This is a serious issue. If you've got a quarrelsome spirit, brothers and sisters, you need to confess and repent to God. And ask for that spirit of quarreling to be removed in a spirit of peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control to be infused. It's not a place to be. It's not a place to live. And I would also suggest this. If that's something that continually comes up in your life, I would suggest you might need to seek out some biblical Christian counseling. Because often a quarrelsome spirit is a result 
of something in your past or your present that you've never really dealt with. That there's something hinging inwardly that's a wound, that's a heartache, that's a traumatic event, and you can't seem to find joy and happiness in your life, it's probably because you need to work through a bit of what happened then. That's just my pastoral word to you. You see, Masa, a place of testing, and Merhaba, a place of quarreling, are not good places to stay. Not good places to be. Just like our family knew we needed to get out of the Coco Key Resort. You might need to get out of these places too. I'm going to invite the praise team just to come join me here. As we enter into a time of response, a time where you can lay some things before the Lord, I, I want to close with, with a psalm. We're about to sing a song, but there's a psalm in the Bible that speaks about this particular scenario. It's actually a worship song, a song that people would sing. Listen to Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are also his the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. That sounds like a worshipful, praiseworthy, thanksgiving song to God. But listen. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are not, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Can you imagine God saying, this generation I loathe, because they tested me and they did not believe I was God. Maybe you have found yourself over the years in a place of testing, a place of quarreling, and you just wanna say, Lord, I need you. I need you to work in my life. I need you to work in my spirit. I need you to work to change me from the inside out. We're gonna sing it, Lord, I need you. And if you need to make any kind of response, the altar is always open. If you want someone to pray with you, I would be honored. If you need to lay something before the Lord, I invite you to do so. Let me pray for us as we begin this time. So Lord, we come, we worship and we bow down for we are your people. And God, now, if there is any place that we are at, a heart of testing, a heart of quarreling, let us lay that before you, repenting, confessing, and crying out that, Lord, we need you in our life. You can transform any heart. You can renew any spirit. And I pray if that's where we are this morning, we would just lay this truly before you.
Lord, we need you. Oh, Lord, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Pray your spirit would move now in Jesus' name.